book of Ezekiel, chapter 17, as we march our way, uh, I'd say quickly, <laughs> I'd say quickly through, but we're struggling to make headway some of these evenings. It's so rich. Ezekiel. Um, again, if you have trouble finding Ezekiel, just open your Bible to the very middle of it. You'll almost certainly hit the book of Psalms. It's so big. And then just flip to the right past, you know, Jeremiah and Isaiah, and you'll hit Ezekiel. When you find your place there, I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to read a little bit of a long section. Uh, so if you got weak knees or a bad back, don't feel too bad. Just relax. But if you can and are willing, let's stand and... <clears throat> Take in this opening portion of Ezekiel. As I prepared for this portion, I kept thinking, man, it would be easier to read this backwards, and you'll see why. Uh, it's like you read this riddle, and then God gives the explanation to the riddle, and then you want to go back and read the riddle again and go, oh, okay, like put the pieces together. But, you know, it's in this order, so we'll read it in that order, and I commend to you some time this week just thinking about the picture. Nonetheless, Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig and it sprouted and became a low spreading vine and its branches turned toward him and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out bows. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not put up, pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted, will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it sprouted? Right? Okay, so there you have the riddle. And, and for people who like riddles, you know, you might be trying to put it together. Well, thanks be to God, Jesus, the Lord himself, <laughs> tells us what this means in the next 10 verses. So 10 verses of a riddle and essentially 10 of an explanation. Verse 11, then the word of the Lord came to me. Say now to this rebellious house, do you, now, do you not know what these things mean? To which we all go, no, <laughs> we don't. Tell them, behold, 
the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. So again, you can kind of like one for one this. This is the beginning of the riddle. The king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king. That's the top of the cedar tree, the noble, the noble part, okay? Took the king um, and her princes and brought them to him in Babylon. That's, that's the nobles of the land. Daniel, the wise young you know, prodigies of the land. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, made a deal with him, putting him under oath. The chief men of the land had been taken away. Again, that's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all the wise guys. And so he put him under an oath, verse 14, that the kingdom might be humble. That's Israel. That they might be humble and not lift itself up and keep its covenant that it might stand. But... He rebelled against him. And how did he do it? By sending his ambassadors to Egypt. That's the second eagle with the plumage in the riddle. Egypt. The first is Babylon. The second is Egypt. He rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army to do what? Rebel against the king of Babylon who placed him on the throne in the absence of the king that was deposed. Will he thrive, God asks in verse 15? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? Seems like God takes covenants seriously, right? Even between men. As I live, verse 16 declares the Lord, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke in Babylon, he shall die. And historically, that's what happened. That king was carted off, his eyes were gouged out, and he was taken back to Babylon. And someone else was set in his place. Pharaoh, verse 17, with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war when mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant and behold, he gave his hand and he did all these things. He shall not escape. He gave his hand. That's to say he shook on it, right? A man's word is his bond and he broke it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised. It's my oath that he despised. Do you see that? And my covenant that he broke, I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Right? That's a refrain of Ezekiel. And I love this. You shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once more, let's petition the Lord in prayer. Father, standing, holding your word, uh, we sit underneath uh, the, 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 the grasses, if you will. You know, Psalm 23 tells us that you lead us uh, to pastures, right? Like a, like a shepherd leads his sheep to graze. You lead us to good pastures with good food where we are safe, we are comforted, and we can be nourished. And so, Lord, we come to these green pastures together tonight. And as we sit and as we listen and learn, 
may we be nourished, not by the words of a 40-year-old man. Those things will fall. They are not eternal. May we be nourished by the word that is eternal. In Christ's name we pray, amen. May be seated. Well, as we walked through the explanation of the riddle, I sought to give you a few clues to help you put the riddle together. But in order for us to appreciate just that, honestly, just by way of summary, we, won't, we, we can't spend 20 minutes breaking this down to make sure we all understand the riddle. But in order to even have a chance at it, we have to remember one critical detail about this thing called the Babylonian invasion. That critical detail is that there's a, there's a number, there's a year, right? That year is 586 BC. And that was when Nebuchadnezzar marched his army against Jerusalem, broke down the walls, burned the temple, and scattered the people. And prophetically speaking, and most likely in reality, a third of the people left died by pestilence, disease, which happens during siege. You're malnourished, you're in close quarters, you can't get out and get fresh air and fresh water, and disease spreads easily. That's what happened with the plague, right? The Black Plague. So a third died by pestilence. They were cooking using animal manure as fuel for a fire. So, you know, anything can happen (laughs) in that situation. A third of them would die by the sword, so they'd die fighting, and then a third of them would be scattered. And so very few, very, very few would stay after that 586 fall of Jerusalem. Only enough people would stay in the land to work it, to be an empirical grocery store for Babylon. Everyone else carted away or killed. So some would stay and the rest carried off to Babylon. But that was the third of three, the third wave. That's the date that's marked in the history books. 722 B.C., Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon invaded the southern kingdom of Judah. Those are the two dates. But we've got to remember, and it's critical because the riddle is all about this, that there were three invasions and they were all separated by roughly 10 years. The first wave was described in the opening verses. Daniel chapter one. In the third year of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar sieged sieged Israel, Jerusalem, and plucked its princes and carried them off plucked the top of the cedar tree and carried them off. That's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all of, the, all of the promising young among all the best and the brightest to come and serve the empire. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar left with his army, did he say, all right, have a nice day, see you later? No, he appointed a king who's related to Jehoiakim, a man named Jehoiakim, Make sure I'm not getting my M's and N's. Yeah, it's M and then N, just like the alphabet. Okay, that's how you can remember. Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim. He appointed Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim is in 
the position of power until the second wave where Ezekiel and 10,000 more are carried away. Now, fast forward five, six, seven years, a new guy, Zedekiah, who was again appointed. He has hired the Egyptians to come and help him fight against Babylon and attain their freedom. So three different kings, three waves, and the last is, if you will, yet to come. So that's what the riddle's all about. It's the history of the multiple rounds of invasion and Israel's attempt, the kings of Israel's attempt to rebuff the Babylonian oversight, hire Egypt to come fight against Babylon until finally 586 BC, you're done. You're done. I've had enough, right? That's basically what Babylon said. I've had enough. I tried leaving you a king. We appointed you a second king, and you do this again to me. You know what? You're done. And that's what happened in 586 BC. It was like they dropped the hammer, right? God says in the, in the riddle, we carried off the nobles, but we left the seed, and we planted the seed in Israel to grow, and it grew. It simply needed to be humble, and it, would, it could stay and remain and grow. But it wasn't humble, it was prideful. So what happened? The hand of the Lord comes back, discipline. And now you hire the Egyptians. Guess what? The hand of the Lord coming back, discipline. Now, the most unique part about this is that if you can keep all that straight, right? One invasion, Two invasions. Second invasion brings Ezekiel to Babylon. Ezekiel's in Babylon. And he's been there for seven years roughly at this point. Five years in, he sees the vision and he receives the calling to be a prophet. A couple more years pass by. He's been doing these wild street theater performances, right? He builds a model of Jerusalem. He puts on the clothes and carries a bag and climbs out of a hole in the wall. He's acting out the part of an exile. Now he's offering up a riddle. So, imagine for me, if you will, and if you can, 586 BC, the final fall of Jerusalem, is just a few years out. It's, it's, it's three, four years out. The fall of Jerusalem would have been preceded by a large army sieging Jerusalem for a season, which would have been preceded by a large army mounting and traveling, which would have been preceded by news of a problem. You with me? So to get to the city falling in the ancient world, a siege, that could go on for eight months or a year. Travel, that could take forever. You, you go, you, you march your armies, you set up your camps. Those things don't happen overnight. They don't have the, the planes that are dropping, dropping people off out of you know, parachutes. These things took major time. These are thousands of people, all the food and all the preparations. Now I point all this out to say this. All you have to do is back that up just a little bit and what you realize is that at the time that Ezekiel was saying this in Babylon to the exiles, it's most likely 
that Zedekiah back in Jerusalem, he's the third king. First one fell, appointed, carried off, appointed. He's already hired the Egyptians. And the news of this is traveling. And the exiles in Jerusalem are going, oh, I heard back home we hired the Egyptians. What do you mean we hired the Egyptians? Yeah, Zedekiah got a bunch of gold together, what he could scrounge together from the nobles and the rich people in the land. They've hired the army. We got an army. We're going to fight back. We're going to get our freedom back. So the news is traveling, right? Then the army assembles of Babylon. Then they travel. Then they siege. Then the city falls. Are you, are you able to stick with me on that? So that's what's happening. Imagine you're the exiles and rumor is spreading. Not just rumor, but news. We hired the Egyptians and here's the key. Ready? The Egyptians are going to save us. You see? And God says, no, no, no. No, no, no. Not only are the Egyptians not going to save you, but it's your pride that's brought you to this point to begin with. It's your sin, and this is of me. Not only will the Egyptians not save you, but I, the Lord, will. And when I do, it will be beautiful, and it will be perfect, and it will be just, and it will be glorious, and no Egyptian army... And no wayward king who broke his covenant, his handshake with Nebuchadnezzar, they're not going to get the glory. I will. Look with me at verse 22. Thus says the Lord, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. What's the sprig of the lofty top of the cedar? What's it represent? Nobility. Right, just like verses one and two, nobility plucked. Again, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top, nobility of the cedar, and I will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, not a willow tree, a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field, uh, the old song says, will clap their hands. But all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. Well, if the cedar is Israel, then what are the rest of the trees of the field? The rest of the world, right? All the peoples of the earth will know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make dry, make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Not only... Not only does the Lord say, stop resisting the hand of discipline. Shame on you, King Zedekiah, for breaking your word. But stop trusting in other things for your rescue. 
I, um, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of uh, Ben Shapiro as a political commentator. And even as one who speaks from a, from a, 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 Jew, a Jewish perspective, because he's a Jew, he's not a Messianic Jew, he thinks Jesus is just another insurrectionist who was killed for his trouble. Um, but he speaks from a moral perspective and the impact that morality has on culture and politics and so on. But, um, and as such, I follow him on social media and he posted recently a, a, an instruction to pray. And he spoke about how prayer reorients us Prayer renews us, and even the act of prayer cleanses us. It makes us whole. And on the surface, that can sound dangerously good and right. But the problem is, what he was saying was, if you pray hard enough, you can clean yourself. And it's the same temptation that comes to us all. If you go to church enough times of the week, if you pray enough in the morning, enough hours, if you journal every day, if you check that box and read that chapter in the morning, right? if you don't go over the speed limit, then you're a good person, and when you get to heaven, God will say, you know what, you are pretty good. All of your good things rescued you. It was the same temptation that was in the mind of Zedekiah and the exiles. You can rescue yourself. You can alleviate yourself from the consequences of sin. For Israel was in exile because of their sin. And so too, we all are in exile because of sin. But there is no human action that we can take, no matter how fervent, no matter how diligent, that will rescue us. It's a fool's errand to put our hope in anything less than the mercy of God. And so, not only do we see this grand principle in what God says in response here, but we also see a picture of the baby born, Jesus the Christ, in these verses. He talks about he will break off from the topmost, from the nobles of its twigs, a what? A tender one, right? A tender one. The babe who is to be born. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it. It will be on a high and lofty mountain. What does Daniel's Daniel's, uh, prophecy speak of? The stone that's thrown from heaven that's not cut with human hands smashes the empires and grows what? Into a great mountain that covers the whole face of the earth. It's the kingdom of God established in Christ. And, verse 24, all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow and say Jesus is Lord either in judgment or in repentance, but every tree of the field will know. Isn't that a great picture? So, to appreciate it, we gotta, we gotta hold on to the history 
the historical account of what happened in Israel. And it's hard. You have to combine 2 Kings 36 and Ezekiel chapter 17 and Daniel chapter 1 and 2 Kings, and you've got to put these things together and get this timeline together in your mind. And it's hard, but look, it's worth it. Especially when we see in the end how grand of a picture it is of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 17 is a wonderful chapter in the book of Ezekiel. But the point of it all is, number one, if you're taking notes, the time is running out. Ezekiel is saying to the exiles, time is running out. Okay? These, these whispers that you hear about the hired Egyptian hand, it's the beginning of the end. Time is running out. Chapter 18 is all about another misconception by the exiles about their condition. In chapter 17, they think they can be rescued by something other than the mercy of God. In chapter 18, they have a different misconception. Read with me verses 1 through 4, the Song of Sorrow. Uh, Usually a song like this is sung at the passing of a loved one, and so you see that is sung over the kings of Israel. They They have died they, have, they, are, they are finished. I don't, I'm not going to break this down. We don't have time. Uh, but the different verses of the song relate to the different kings that were deposed. Remember the three kings? Kim, Ken, and then Zedekiah. Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. They're, they're all part of this. This song, this one fell, and then that one fell, and this one's going to fall. Why? Because they resisted the hand of the Lord and his discipline of his children. Because they broke their oath that they made with Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 20 is long. And it describes further rebellion. If you're noticing a theme, you're, you're on solid ground, right? Sin, rebellion, death, mourning. Now more, chapter 20, more rebellion. Look with me at the first eight verses. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord, I will not be inquired of by you. Remember last week, they had had taken the idols in their hearts, the elders of Israel, right? Remember that? I will not be inquired of of by you. Verse four, will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God. Remember that? Remember the Exodus story, everyone? Verse six, on that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all the lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and don't defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me 
and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. I rescued them. I displayed my power. I called you my son. But they rebelled anyway. So then, second half of verse 8, then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them for what it's worth as promised, Deuteronomy 28 or 29. I will pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. And it goes on like that for another like 50 verses where it just says, I gave, I loved. Chapter 16, I clothed, I put garments on you and a gold ring in your ear and on your finger and I made you my bride and you ran around town on me. I made you my child and you rebelled against me. If you're noticing a theme again, friends, it's because this is the message. This is the message to a people who think they're okay, but are not. And for anyone who might think that, you know, Ezekiel and the Old Testament is kind of irrelevant, boring stuff, let's talk about Jesus and feeding 5,000. Friends, this could not be more relevant. We are surrounded by people, especially in the Bible Belt, who think they are okay, but they are not. God has done his part. He gave his son. You might even say God has blessed us to be in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Here's his word preserved for us. You don't even have to own one. You can check one out from the library or go to a hotel, and there's a Bible, there's his word. It's everywhere. You know, in North Korea, the secret churches in North Korea hide the one copy of the Bible that they have in a hole in the ground, wrapped in cloth until the next week when they can all secretly come out down by a riverbank so that their whispers of songs aren't overheard by the armies of North Korea. And they open the ground and unravel the Bible and they sit in silence and they whisper through the text with bated breath, right? Meanwhile, here in America, it's everywhere. God has done his part. He has given, he has clothed, he has loved, he has given his son but they have rebelled against him. And the worst part about their rebellion is that those, there's so, friends, so many people around us, our neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, they're stuck in the same trap that the exiles in Babylon were stuck in. It's someone else's fault. We're not that bad. I can save myself. Something else can help me keeping the idols of self-pleasure and tucked away in their heart. And so Ezekiel's ministry is to stand up, in essence, in front of a bunch of people and say, you think you're okay, but you're not. Repent. And friends, that is the message that we leave this building with. You think you're okay. You're not. Repent. 
You think because you raised your hand at some youth thing at 2009 that you're okay? John the Baptist said, bear the fruit of repentance. Where's the evidence? If there's not enough evidence to convict, we should wonder if we are found guilty of being Christian at all. Well, it's a heavy message, and it, and it reverberates verse after verse, and, and God just enumerates their sin and their rebellion against the Sabbaths and against the feasts and against his, his insistence that they not worship idols. But as we have seen again and again, sections have a way of doing this in Ezekiel. One section comes to a close with a constant promise. Turn to verse 40 of chapter 20 with me. For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them, look, shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them. There I will require your contributions and the choicest of your gifts and with all your sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out from the countries where you have been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel the country that I swore to give your fathers. And there you will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves. And you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Thanks be to God, right? It's the promise to restore. Just as they first needed to be confronted, so too the people in our communities need to be confronted. Then comes a great promise that God will deal with us not according to our evil deeds, but according to the blood of Christ. But you don't get there without going through the confrontation first. The promise rings hollow without the confrontation. Jesus loves you. It means nothing. It means nothing. If you don't understand what love looked like expressed to its fullest. And that's someone giving their lives, the eternal Son of God, poured out as a sin covering for many. That's love. Why would love be expressed that way? Because we're sinful. And that's what's required to reconcile us to our maker. Nothing short of that would suffice. But with all that backstory, the promise to restore comes as a great comfort, both to those in exile and to us who are awaiting his second coming, his return as he promised, I will come again, he said. This is the character and the plan of the Lord for Israel and, and, it's, and for the fullest expression of Israel. 
And that's what Paul talks about, true Israel. True Israel is those descended from Abraham who believe in Jesus and those who are outside the family of Abraham who believe in Jesus. The fullest expression of Israel encompasses all nations and peoples of the earth, including those who are of Jewish descent who believe. That's the fullest expression. And so these promises made to Israel are also made. It's the near and far. Near in Israel, far in all of humanity. Verse 41 speaks of gathering from countries where his people are scattered. And that was true then and it's true now. In Revelation, we're treated to this scene. It says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A great multitude from where every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. He will, verse 41 of Ezekiel, 20, he will gather us. Verse 43 also speaks to something powerful. He says, you'll remember and loathe your evil. You'll remember your sinfulness and you'll loathe your evil. That's a strange thing to come accompanied with a great promise to restore, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Seems out of place. I'll restore you and I'll bring you and I'll accept your offerings, right? He had been previously rejecting their offerings. He says, I'll accept your offerings. You'll be my people, I'll gather you. Oh, and you'll remember how sinful you are and you'll loathe yourself for it. And you go, what? You know what? We were having a nice time there, God, and then you just ruined it, you know? Right? How is that part of the promise to restore that's so positive and uplifting? Well, It's a good promise that you will loathe evil. In the text of scripture, to loathe evil is first a command. Psalm 97.10, oh you who love the Lord, hate evil. That's a command. Not only that, but it's the definition of genuine love. Romans 12.9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. It's a command, it's the definition of genuine love. It's one of the qualities in those God uses Exodus 18, 21, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe, and set them as chief, set them up as chiefs. So hate evil is one of the qualities in those that God uses. And then finally, it's the result of wisdom or nearness and familiarity with God's word. Psalm 119, 104. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. To loathe evil is a command. It's the definition of true love. It's one of the qualities of those who God uses and it's the result of nearness and familiarity with God's word. It's easily one of the greatest gifts that God gives to his children. They hate what is evil. They remember their days of folly. And they mourn. Right, saints? With a few years behind you, a little water under the bridge, you remember those days of rebellion and wickedness and sin and compromise. 
even ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit or being completely oblivious altogether. You remember those days where you embraced sin and you drank deeply from the cup and what do you do? You mourn, right? It's one of the great gifts that God gives to us. We not only see the folly and evil, but we see the, the sweetness of holy living. This is able to motivate us and empower us to live rightly in the world as an example of God's holiness, to bear the fruit of repentance, to Ephesians 5, walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling, worthy of the name of Jesus. And finally, to hate evil is a great litmus test for salvation and maturity. Friend, do you hate what is evil or are you entertained by it? Are you indifferent toward it? Depending on your answer to those questions, you may find exactly where you stand with God. You're separated from him in sin or reconciled to him through his son. When we come to Christ for faith and renewal, he gives us a new heart that hates evil. As we spend time in his word, we are given wisdom that compels us and teaches us to hate what is evil. And finally, as we grow and as we mature in Christ, we learn that to abhor, abstain, and compel those who we love to stay far from evil is not to hate them, but it's the truest act of genuine love. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Well, these things are necessary in a day and time in which we live if we're to accurately proclaim the gospel. I guess we'll pick it up next week where I intended to spend some time in chapter 18. And then uh, one day, we'll finish the book of Ezekiel. My elders, um, well, the elders, encouraged me not to worry too much about um, the schedule, but to just trust the Lord and, um, and do what I could. So that's what we're doing. We're doing what we can. And uh, Ezekiel might be 24 weeks instead of 12. Two semesters worth. We'll see. Now, thanks for, thanks for being attentive uh, to a challenging old book. It's worth it. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you for these amazing pictures in your scriptures. We thank you for the, the time and the ability to think clearly, to challenge our minds, to grapple with dates and times and words and pictures so that we might hear and see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ ringing through the scriptures from A to Z. Thank you. It's a great gift. May it resonate in us, convicting us and compelling us to confess and repent and seek your face. And may it also empower us with the truth of the gospel. Help us accordingly for your sake and the sake of those who are in our orbit who are far from you. May you rescue them from their hopelessness and helplessness and might you use our feeble mouths as instruments to do so. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Good night, folks.